This is the Comic Shenanigans Podcast, episode 862, a conversation with Daryl Banks. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I am your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 862. It's our conversation with Daryl Banks. Uh, Daryl is a, a wonderful illustrator who had a long, long run on the Green Lantern book in the early 90s. Um, sorry. I guess mid-90s to uh, early 2000s, uh, he did a lot of great work. Um, but what he's probably best known for is really uh, bringing the character of Kyle Rayner to life. He designed the costume for Kyle Rayner. Uh, he was one kind of charting the new direction with Ron Mars uh, and uh, you know really bringing the Green Lantern into you know the 90s and doing something very different with him. Uh, you know they kind of got rid of or kind of you know played off the stage uh, Hal Jordan um, and played him into Parallax and then they brought in the idea of this you know this new kid this Kyle Rayner um, kid who is ba- basically kind of like a Spider-Man like character um, in terms of being kind of a not quite a team but a young uh, kind of 20 something uh, who becomes a superhero and what do you do with that and how do you become a superhero how do you you know if you're the only Green Lantern you don't have a core anymore how does that work um, and it was Daryl was uh, tremendously uh, generous with his time and we had a great conversation for the show and i'm actually hoping to have him come back for a little bit more of maybe more in-depth creator commentary because i'm just really interesting how he goes about his art um certain ideas in terms of the characters he was kind of noodling around with um the idea of you know where the composition for kyle's uh, costume came from uh his again his kind of back and forth with ron mars and how that led into a really fruitful relationship working on the green lantern character um so i'd love to get even more into the weeds with him on that so i'm hoping we can do that at some point in the near future but for now this is a great conversation where we really kind of get into uh how he got into comics uh why he wanted to get into comics how he became for a while he was uh, teaching uh, comic book art uh, how he kind of got that job, how he you know, had a program that he was developing uh, back in the uh, mid-90s. Uh, so this was a great conversation. It was really great to ch- chat with Daryl, and I'm hoping that we get to do more in the future. Uh, you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Uh, and uh, without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Daryl Banks. Enjoy. Daryl, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are, are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Adam. Great to be here. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's great to have you. So, uh, first kind of question, and I guess this is kind of rote, but the first thing I always like to ask guests is, you know, when did comics first become part of your life in some way? Or when did when did you first become aware of them uh, and and have an interest in them? I don't really have a sharp memory of when I didn't like some sort of comics. I mean, you know, even as probably a you know, a small child probably liked the comic strips, but uh, I would say, you know, elementary school getting interested in, in comics. Superheroes came a little bit later. I, I remember my first comic books that uh, that were bought for me were things like uh, Archie and mm. and uh, there was a military one called Sad Sack and uh, uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost, that kind of thing. And then you know, as I remember our family had moved and the neighborhood I lived in, you know, most of the guys were into the superhero stuff and kind of wanting to fit in. And plus, you know, I was interested. I was watching cartoons with superheroes. So that sort of, uh, that was when the, the, the rabbit hole began, <laughs> <laughs> especially with, especially with Marvel comics. Oh, I tell you, that was, that, that was my childhood, I think. <laughs> Which were the characters that you found yourself gravitating towards most at Marvel at the time? Uh... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, and then uh, Spider-Man. <laughs> it was Spider-Man, and then everybody else. Um, I think as I, I got a little bit older, more towards middle school uh, Avengers. And mm. then uh, it's kind of been that way to this day, <laughs> as far as Marvel's concerned. Now, you've said in prior interviews that uh, John Romita Sr. was a, a huge impact on you in terms of uh, kind of an inspirational kind of role model in terms of the art, but also just as a storyteller. What was it about... John Romita Sr. that really spoke to you when you were younger and continued to speak to you as an artist yourself? John Romita Sr. to me was, you know, if I had to encapsulate, I'd say definitive. Hmm. I mean, I think about when it came to uh, 
his comic art, of course, that to me, that was just top notch. But then when it came time to have books about Marvel characters, like, or even reprint books, you know, he would uh, draw and sometimes even paint the cover. So to me, he was at one point was the face of the company mm. in many ways, and, uh, and rightfully so. Did you ever get to meet him? Uh, yes and no. Um, I met his wife, and I saw him at a distance. See, the thing is, um, I need prep time because I get starstruck really easily, <laughs> very easily, especially if, if if anyone who had a huge impact on me as a, as a child, I need to prepare for it. So I remember uh, his wife, I believe her name was Virginia, was walking around and you know, I, I I saw her and you know I chatted with her a bit and she was she wanted to she's like yeah come on let's let's meet John and I'm like I'm not ready <laughs> I'm not ready for it. I'm like he's the guy for me I'm like ah oh, because I I remember it all started with I met another childhood uh, hero of mine Keith Pollard mm. but I I wasn't prepared and I remember you know kind of waiting here like a, a line of people and, uh, when it was my turn. You know, I'm thinking at this point, I had been in the business for quite a while. I was, I was going to introduce myself. Yeah, we're colleagues now, you know. But then I happened to look down, and he had original pages from Spectacular Spider-Man and Thor and the stuff that I grew up on. And it was like, uh, have you ever seen the the, the movie uh, Christmas Story? Yep. Uh, well, it was like little Ralphie. You know, when he when it was time to tell Santa what he wanted for Christmas, like you're blowing it, Ralphie. <laughs> It was like that. I, I just, it was a stream of, I don't even think there were complete sentences, and he's probably wondering, you know, should this guy have a handler? Is, is he on his medication? <laughs> and ever since then, I thought, I need to prepare myself when I'm going to <laughs> meet someone that's going to blow my mind. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah it, it takes prep time. So, no, I, I, I saw John Romita, senior at a distance, met his wife, but, um, yeah, didn't didn't wasn't prepared to, to to talk with him. I probably should have, because I don't know, you know, when I'd get an opportunity to do it again. But that that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's 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 say you did have kind of that that prep time. Like what again? Because he, for you, he's kind of that definitive guy. I mean, what what would you say to someone like that? Like, what would you? Would you even want to say anything, or do you want to just hear him talk about process? Like, you know, what would you want to hear him say? Um, and here's another thing. You know, his son, I'm also a fan of his son, John Romita uh, Jr. Mm-hmm. But Senior was the one that, you know, he he was the first uh, comic artist I, I tried to emulate, you know, when I was drawing. I, you know, I, I thought, I, I want my drawings to look like his. Now, I was a little kid, so obviously that wasn't going to happen, but <laughs> it was just the sheer fact that he was the first I said, I, you know, I think I can do it. You know, mm-hmm. um, I couldn't, but <laughs> like I said, uh, the intentions were there. Um, but if I had to, if I could talk with him, um, knowing me, I'd probably want to keep it short because he would probably end up mentioning something that it was just it would trigger it. It was like uh, <laughs> I probably want to know um, some of the techniques he used for some of the covers he did for things like uh, Marvel did. Uh, reprint books um, that had uh, written text in between each story by Stan Lee, talking about the, the behind the scenes of the creation of the character featured in each segment. For example, there was a book called The Origins of Marvel Comics, mm-hmm. and there was a sequel called Son of Origins of Marvel Comics, and so each of those had a John Romita Sr. painted cover. And I'd probably want to know a little bit about, you know, you know was that watercolor and you know, with ink, was it you know, mixed media? Probably want to know about that sort of thing, and maybe you know, maybe a little backstory from him. And I'd probably that'd be about it. And I'd probably have to walk away while I could, while I could, my mind was still intact, <laughs> relatively speaking. It's funny because I feel like that would probably be something that he'd want to talk about because I feel like it probably doesn't come up very often. Whereas it's not one of the greatest hits kind of questions, you know? Yeah, but see. Once again, I can I can tell you what I would probably like to talk about, but see, he's I mean he's he's that. Now here's the thing: there are exceptions to that. For example, I'm I'm good friends with Terry Austin. Now hmm. he had the same impact, but see, Terry and I we worked together for a while, and he's a toy maniac just like I am. So <laughs> my brain puts him in a different category. Hmm. Uh, case in point, I remember 
uh, it's one thing that's common for me. I'm chatting with friends, and we'll talk about comics and you know some of our favorite our favorite artwork, maybe covers, and I'll, and we'll go, oh yeah, I was I was looking at an old cover by Neil Adams. And, oh man, it was so good. That sort of thing. I was doing. I was on the phone with Terry, and I had recently saw a, an old uh, Ms. Marvel cover. I think he had inked. And I was going to bring it up, and I was going to talk about it as if I wasn't talking. But I was, oh yeah, that was eight by Terry Austin. I'm like, I'm saying to myself, dude, you're talking to Terry Austin. <laughs> but like I said, this, my brain just puts him in a different category. Like, oh, that's Terry. You know, <laughs> right? That's the same one that you know used to just you know. Uh, I, I really couldn't believe that anyone could ink that way. You know, it's now to hear him tell it. You know, his his career was not at all the way. You know, you would imagine, you would think this guy would have the red carpet rolled out for him all the time, but it was, such was not the case. Mm. I tell him he needs to write a book. He really does. But, but yeah, now Terry is an exception to that. You know, someone that had a huge impact on me, as, you know, even as a child. But I can talk to him, you know, at length, and we usually do our conversations tend to stretch into the hours, <laughs> um, mainly because we don't get to chat as often as we used to. But, mm. uh, but yeah, you- so. Terry's an exception, yeah. When you first, brought, I mean, I, I'm kind of skipping around, but when you kind of first became kind of a working comics professional, how long did it take you to, and I feel like a lot of artists have this, kind of shed that, that feeling of imposter syndrome? Like, I do belong here. I am, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good artist, and now I'm, you know, in this, in this brotherhood, this, you know, this fraternity of all these other amazing artists that I have adored and have, you know, learned from, et cetera. How long did it kind of take to lose that feeling of imposter syndrome, or did, or did you never have it? Um, I, I've never really thought of myself that way. And what's funny is I remember uh, this was about three years ago, I think, at the Heroes Con in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I was on an end cap of, uh, with a guest with, um, let's see, it was Steve Epting, who created the Winter Soldier, Jerry Ordway, you know, <laughs> who needs no introduction, and... Um, and myself and it was kind of like you know why why am I with them you know it's kind of like <laughs> when everyone else was like oh this is cool look, you know look who we got to write this right you know in this area and I'm thinking one of these things is not like the other it's like um, <laughs> but you know I mean that would that would keep happening I was at a show once in a you know in a featured area with Jim Steranko and I'm thinking ah did someone not show up and they just didn't want to leave an empty spot they just slid me there I mean it just you know my, my mind won't Will allow me to think. Why, yes, I'm with those guys. Like, no, <laughs> it just I, I don't know. It's not false humility. It's just probably because in many cases I was fans of them. Mm. So I feel like I'm I'm a fan that gets you know, that gets to, to sit right next to the guests, you know. But I'm a guest as well. Well, as you said, it's I guess that idea that you you put them in different levels, and you know, you're, because they were already there when you got there to the party, it does have that kind of feeling that you know you're still the fan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I am. <laughs> I remember uh, Garcia Lopez was at uh, Motor City Comic Con once, and he was I think getting up maybe to stretch his legs. Of course, people want to run over and take a selfie. And there was like a little, like a kind of little line just for that. And I was in line with everybody else. <laughs> I was against <laughs> the same show, but I'm like, that's Garcia freaking Lopez. He, yeah, I got to take a picture with him. You know? <laughs> so let's go back in a second. So, you know, you're growing up, you're, you know, big into comics. You're, you know, again, you're a big fan of the, the Marvel comics initially, especially. Um, at what point do you decide... You know, I, I I can do this, or I you know I, I I would love to be a comic book artist, and I should take steps to try and become an artist. I wanted, I I, I knew I wanted to get into comics, but I had no idea how, no idea how. I mean, didn't have the means to travel to to go to to company, uh, you know, to visit companies or even do the larger conventions. I mean, I'm born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, still here. Um, so it was one of those things where. You know, me and my friends used to, we used to make our own comics. And I thought, ah, this is what I would love to do for a living, but I, I don't know. So, you know, I went to college for commercial illustration, you know, just to get an air quotes real job. But, you know, I thought, but comics is what I want to do. You know, how, you know, there was a school in New York, but, you know, I couldn't afford to move to New York. So um, I just went to school here locally. And uh, every once in a while, I would be able to show some samples uh, to well, 
course, let me let me backtrack a little bit. There was a time where Marvel Comics, DC Comics, the larger companies would come to just about any convention. Hmm. You know, th- this was before it had to be a major convention with a thousand people or more for them to show up. You know, I mean, I've been to shows where there were just hundreds of people, and you know, Marvel and DC had a table or a booth or something. So I, you know, I would show my my samples and get cut to shreds. <laughs> and uh, after a while. I noticed as I as I actually worked on things, uh, Marvel seemed like I, I would just kind of get generic things, but DC, they would always give me specific things to practice, specific mm. things to improve, like you know, it, to a point where it was a list. I, I literally had a, a little notebook and I would jot down those things. And I thought, now growing up, I, I, I didn't dislike DC, but I was more of a Marvel guy. Mm-hmm. But I kept thinking. I said, if, if this keeps up, I have a feeling if I can work for those those companies, it's going to be DC because I, it seems like they have more input with my work, and I think that my work would fit more with them. Which, you know, I mean, it, it, it's not like they would be second prize, but you know, the, the part of the kid of me is like, I want to do something tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, I mean, even once I once I finished college and all that, you know, um, it, it still didn't work out that way. I ended up. I think I worked in the shoe department for a while <laughs> with a college degree. I'm like, oh, that sucks. But then uh, doing work in the independent, uh, I said independent circuit, like like a performer or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, D.C. didn't happen until about half a decade later. Hmm. But, you know, just like I, I had assumed that I would, you know, I'd hear more from them, which I did. It's interesting which that... It worked out pretty good. Because it sounds like a very mature way of kind of interpreting that you know being like i, I want to work at marvel but dc is the one that are actually as you said kind of having more of an impact on your work and actually giving you specific notes and that's more towards your career development so it's kind of that combination of on the one side you have this kind of the kid inside you wants to go play with the marvel toys but the other side of you is like well if i want to get better these are the guys who are going to help you do that correct and i did eventually get some work at Marvel, it was you know wasn't very much, but you know I, I at least I have that on my resume, and and uh, and that was it was very interesting, and I'm very appreciative of it. But I have to say, you know, um, at one point I taught at the same college I got my degree from, and I would always inevitably have a student who's extremely talented, but they hit that wall and they get discouraged, and they think I don't think this is going to work out, and it's kind of like wow, I felt like I'm in a time machine talking to myself, I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, you, 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 and especially it was my students that I had zero doubt they were going to make it. Hmm. It seems like there were those that even I was wondering, like, oh, is this person going to stick with this? My, it was my star students that would ironically have some of the most self-doubt, especially you know getting closer to senior year. And of course, every single one of them that I had, you know, uh, that talk with, they all went on to do you know great things. I had. Uh, one student, you know, he loved Star Wars. He ended up working with Lucasfilm. Still does. Oh wow! Um, I had one that uh, that was actually getting DC work before he graduated. So I started to say, like, see. But one thing they all had in common is that they were they had a, that singleness of of objective, and they were willing to work. Mm-hmm. They didn't just treat it like a hobby. Um, they kept doing it when it wasn't fun. They kept doing it when it was difficult. You know, that's how I was trained. I, it felt good that, that they were able to, you know, have that same mentality. Um, but yeah, that's that's the thing is to not is to, is to power through discouragement because uh, back in the old days, back in the old back in my day, back in seventeen hundreds, <laughs> uh, Marvel and DC they would give you actually rejection letters. They would they would give you a physical letter <laughs> shooting you down. But uh, they usually said it sounded the same. It's kind of like oh you're you know, your samples are very interesting. We appreciate the effort and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like a girl telling you, oh, you've got a nice personality. It's like, <laughs> oh, 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 that hurts. So um, I had so many of those, it was thicker than a phone book, you know. Um, but I, I, so I regret throwing those away. I wish I had kept them because so often I've used that example on different uh, podcasts or appearances. And I think people think there might be a degree of exaggeration. It's like, oh, if I go... Boom! Here, look, see. <laughs> it's like, wow, you you withstood all that kind of rejection. I'm like, oh, it wasn't easy. <laughs> if, if if I had a if, if I had a uh, just a penny for every time I felt like quitting, I think I'd still be a millionaire. I mean, 
it, it just looked like I this just wasn't meant to be. But honestly, it was one of those things where what else am I going to do? You know, it's like <laughs> I'm not going to sing and I'm, I'm not an athlete. Art's going to have to be it. So mm-hmm. I didn't want to just do a nine to five. Nothing wrong with that. My parents did that, but I just felt like I wanted more for myself, and I was going to figure this thing out one way or the other. God willing, and mm-hmm. here we are. So I'm curious. So you mentioned something that I've always been intrigued by. So you. You know, you do become an educator. So how long did your career as an educator last? I did it for five years. And interesting enough is that when when I, I knew I, I was going to leave because at, uh, usually about around that, let me think, this was about, this was actually early with my work with D.C. And so I was busy doing that. And then also I had just gotten married. So it's kind of like work with D.C., a new wife and teaching. One of these things is going to have to go. It ain't going to be the wife, and it ain't going to be DC. So it's going to have to be you teaching. So <laughs> <laughs> um, now, even after that, I would still once in a while come by and, and speak to, to students' classes, especially since um, my successors that took over the class, because I created a comic class for the college, mm-hmm. and those that took you know took on after me, I would come and visit their class from time to time. So. I was out of it, but not completely away from it, you know. So I, I'm curious how, like, how did that even come about? Like, again, you're, especially as, as based on the timing that you kind of say, like you're working on kind of breaking in and getting that kind of early work with DC and really getting going. And then you're also working, you know, at the college. How did that even come about? And, you know, because that's, you know, that could have been a whole different path if you didn't want to continue with the comic artist artwork. You could have, you know, obviously stand as an educator. So what... What, how did you even get into that position? Because that's that's a tough thing to do. The the teaching came from a a former teacher of mine and good friend named Ron Tardino. He always see the school was not big on comics as an art form. It just wasn't. And I think this you know keep in mind this was the early eighties. We didn't have the billion dollar superhero movies and that sort of thing <laughs> back then. And, you know, a lot of you know it's like fans knew, but just the average person just didn't. So they probably thought of, you know, oh, you know, comic books. Oh, that's like uh, Batman, Batman, like, no, that's one type. But, yeah, they didn't know. So, but I did have a couple teachers that, that did understand that it was an art form and, and actually did have my back. And Mr. Tardino was one of them. And so uh, I remember he had approached me and said, hey, I've got this idea. I want you to, uh, you know, to teach a few uh marker techniques to some seniors the juniors and seniors and uh and i did that and uh actually <laughs> that was what happened was instead of just oh okay we're class we're going to work with markers you know i like to create a composition so because that's what i was used to with comics so i noticed and these were juniors and seniors meaning they're you know at home stretched to, to get their degrees and i noticed they couldn't really create a cohesive scene you know like a comic book panel which is kind of what I was going for as far as with perspective and depth and environment. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a problem because you're going to need that skill set once you graduate. So my marker class kind of turned into a applied, like, structural drawing class. Hmm. And, uh, and, I, and I said, well, the reason I can do that on the fly and it's easy for me to teach because that's, you know, that's Comics 101. Yeah. And so... Um, one thing that really helped was that because I did it so often, it made it easy to explain. Mm. So uh, uh, Mr. Tardino had said, you know, I got an idea. What if you do a comic class and take those skills you just mentioned and stretch it out to a, a, a complete program? And I'm thinking, you're kidding. At this college, they don't even like comics. But he <laughs> said, you know, if you put something together, I'll, I'll, I'll see that it gets pushed through. And I'm thinking, that'll never happen. And it did. Wow. <laughs> and I, then I, I'm like, well, what would the homework be? He was like, well, what do you think it should be? I'm like, oh. So, I mean, I just remember staring at a blank notebook paper for the longest, thinking, all right, uh, I know what I didn't want it to be. I didn't want it to be superhero stuff. Because, one, I, did, I, I didn't want anyone to think that that's what comics is, only superheroes. Hmm. Comics is like saying to television, well, what kind of show? You know, the uh, news, documentary, fiction, nonfiction. So I wanted to make sure that they were focused on fundamentals that you could apply to anything. So um, 
it went over well. Uh, I've had more than one student say, I came to the school just to take this class. Now, mind you, this was an elective, meaning you didn't need it to graduate. It was just, you know, it wasn't a major. But I'm mean, hearing people say, I came to this college to take your class. So I'm thinking, wow, um, th- th- can I get a raise for that? Of course, the answer was no. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, there, to me, you know, comics is... is that's wide open. That's even though we tend to, to make it superheroes. I know I certainly do. But as you know, you know, comics is, is such a uh, an international, uh, internationally known art form in, in and of itself that can cover any type of topics that I think the human mind can imagine. Absolutely. So I want to ask a little bit about you know you're cutting your teeth at places like Innovation and Millennium Publications before you do kind of get the uh, sort of you know the the so-called call to DC. So what was it like kind of working in that period? Was it a struggle? Was it something that you were still passionate about because you were finally at least working in the industry and starting to get like a name for yourself? Or like how did you feel as you're going through that period and working on titles like Doc Savage and the Wild Wild West and the Justice Machine? That was like going to school except taking the courses that I really wanted to take to get me where I was trying to get to. Because honestly, my first work, I didn't know how to do it. It was like sample, you know, I don't know how long it took because, you know, I had to do it in between, you know, maybe when I got home from work or something like that. And so I, I had no idea how long it was. If all I had to do was to focus on doing a page, I don't know how long that was. So I didn't really factor that in. I was just so <laughs> trying so hard just to, to get the approval, but it's like, okay, now you now you have it now now what it's like oh uh okay how do you do this <laughs> so it was just i mean really just flailing at it and and uh it, it wasn't until really i think you mentioned doc savage where i think i had a step-by-step process on you know from layout to you know to, to really get better at storytelling and that sort of thing uh come and, it, and that really i have to give a lot of credit to my friend uh Mark Ellis, who also was the, the owner of the company uh, with his wife uh, at Millennium, because we worked together at Innovation, and then he started his own company, and so I just followed him. Mm. And so it was like I had work and almost like homework, <laughs> because it was a learning <laughs> process, you know. And he was really willing to work with me uh, on things, because uh, really it, well, it was only, I mean, my first... Oh, maybe ten years in the business. I wasn't the fastest guy in the world. <laughs> I just wasn't. Um, I really, looking back, I don't know how I was on Lantern so long because I was not fast at all. I just made sure that you know that I I had all the what I call the intangibles. I used to tell my students, I said, so often uh, artists are focused on just the art to be successful in whatever art career they're looking for. I said. Your, how well you draw, paint, or design is only 60% of your success rate. The other 40% is what I call the intangibles. You know, when, when the company wants you to make a correction or something, will you be too egotistic to want to do it? Will you even pick up the phone? Are you professional? Can you, if, if you're going to have a problem with a, with a deadline, are you, do you have the communication skills to let them know that? Things like that. And because of that, you know, I've, I more... On one occasion, I've gotten art assignments over artists who side by side are clearly better than me. Clearly. But, I mean, I've even had an editor go, oh, I was going to get so-and-so, but he's too much of a diva. So, you know, <laughs> you know I, I know you're going to do it. So, um, that sort of thing. And I always try to pass it on to, you know, either, you know, when I was a teacher or in, in a teaching-like environment, just to let people know. Because sometimes someone will, especially in today's social media, they'll, they'll say, oh, this art over here, she's better or he's better than me. Like well, you're you're only looking at the final product, but what about everything that took to get there? You know. Oh, for sure. I remember so, I remember reading an interview a few years ago with uh, Mark Bagley, and he was saying how you know before he got his break, his big break in comics, he was a roofer, and it, it really it instilled in him a real work ethic. And he said, you know, I may not be the best artist out there, but Dan, if anyone's going to work harder and faster than me. Mm-hmm. And you and can that worked out pretty well for y- him. Yes, it did. <laughs> So when so here's my question. So I mean, so you, you cut your teeth and you really start to you know figure out how it's done, and then you do you know a few issues of Legion of Superheroes, uh, like you do some pages here and there, and then you do Green Lantern Corps quarterly, and then suddenly you're on Green Lantern, and then that, and that's 
you know, that's a long time that you're on Lantern. And so I'm curious, like, that's just to walk back in time for a second. Like, that's a huge moment because, you know, you start doing covers during Emerald Twilight and then you, you know, bring in Kyle Rayner. And again, like if social media existed back then, I don't think they would have stuck with it because there was so much vitriol, it seemed, that in the fan press that people were so upset about what happened to Hal. And now you have this brand new character. And yet there's a whole generation who grew up with Hal as, sorry, uh, Kyle as their Green Lantern and who look at your stuff as being so important to them because that's the Green Lantern they grew up with. Like that's their childhood and it's your interpretation of Kyle. So at the time, did it feel like this was this kind of watershed moment or was it just an assignment that you were glad to be able to kind of work on, a, on an ongoing book? Like, how did you feel at the time? I thought it was funny because when I was doing work uh, with Legion of Superheroes, I mean, it all started with, I think they gave me, oh, I want to say like four pages because mm-hmm. they were looking for new talent, just kind of like a farm league type of thing you know, for this uh, Legion of Superheroes annual. I don't remember the number. And I guess they liked how fast I turned them around and, and the quality. They said, do you want to do some more? And I, I'm, I'm trying to, I mean, this is, I didn't have a computer back then. I'm on the phone. I almost dropped the receiver thinking, do I want to do some more? You know, I was, I worked in a shoe department. Yeah, I want to do some more. <laughs> so as I'm doing this stuff, I'm talking to my editor, my associate, the associate editor about, you know, it, it, it was once again, I'm glad to be there, but you know, I had some ideas cause I had been jotting down in a sketchbook things that I would do with Green Lantern. Now I wasn't the biggest Green Lantern fan in general, but one day I just got to thinking about it. I said, you know, that's a really cool concept, but you know, if I had a ring like that, I wouldn't be making boxing gloves and stuff. Yeah, I'd be making big, you know, anime cannons and, and shields and that sort of thing. And I'm just saying that just as I'm having, you know, you know, chatting with whatever I was working on at the time, I didn't realize that the associate editor, they also, you know, they, they, they work in more than one title. Mm. So one of them actually had said, he had repeated what I said to the Green Lantern editors. It's like, you know, this guy, this, this new guy, he, he has some ideas for Green Lantern. It's like, let's, let's keep an eye on it, you know, see how this works out. And so I didn't realize that by <laughs> by having a big mouth on some ideas that I had, that uh, that it was getting back to them, and so that was one of the factors that that made them want to take a look at you know my interpretation of it. Hmm. Again, like it's interesting, just again looking at some of that work because you know before you start doing interiors in Green Lantern, like you're doing the covers demo Twilight, and those are some of the most gripping Green Lantern covers I've ever seen. They're so memorable. I mean, I, I feel like. You know, the one of, of, of Hal kind of reaching out um, above him and just kind of blasting this, you know, the sky in anguish. And then obviously the most, probably one of the more famous ones of Hal looking absolutely crazy with all the Green Lantern rings on his fingers. Like those, <laughs> those covers are so indelible and they had such an impact. And this is, you know, you brand new to Green Lantern and this is what you're throwing right out of the gate. Again, did it feel like you were, you know, really tapping into something special or, or was it just like you were excited absolutely. to have the gig? Well, keep in mind, now, the uh, issue 48 with Hal kneeling in the city, that I actually was given a layout by Ed Hannigan, whose work I was familiar with at Marvel. So, mm. you know, I'm, I'm about to, I, it's kind of like a, like a rough layout, but still, it was enough there that I could tell his art style. And I'm thinking, you know, this is it. You know, you're, you're working with the pros. I mean, this is, these are people that, you know, you know by name. I mean, then I was going to be inked by Romeo, who had, you know, did one of my favorite runs on Teen Titans with George Perez. It was kind of like, you know, just just breathe deeply, calm down. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, that's one thing that, that, that enthusiasm, I kind of funneled into Kyle because in, in many ways he was me. You know, it's kind of like just surprised to be there and, and looking where, you know, when he's around Superman and Batman and he's, you know, just in awe of it, you know, that's what it felt like, you know, as I'm drawing it. So it was like a life in a, imitating art and vice versa. Does it ever surprise? Yeah, it was, it was a, very impactful. Does it surprise you how, again, like I, going back to Green Lantern 49 with all the rings on the fingers, like that's, does it, does it surprise you by how often that shows up in like collections and like reprintings and like that's such a famous kind of cover and moment and it's yours and that'll always be yours. Does that ever surprise you or did you kind of know when it, when you did it that this is something special? I have no idea. And and actually, a lot of that were started to appear a lot. That happened years later. Hmm. I mean, not at first. Um, 
but what's funny is because comic book covers uh, because comics are a product covers fall fall under a different category I had a cover editor now I had you know editors on the on the interior but I you know to get their approval for a cover I had to work with a an actual cover editor who I guess he oversaw all, all the covers so normally any cover I did I had to submit a bunch of you know preliminary sketches and then he would approve one what worked what, what, what didn't or in the case of, of 48 you know it was uh, the layout was provided for me already since that was my first one and so normally you know it's back and forth back and forth and they'll you know okay yeah this won't work with 49 it was just two sketches it was the first one looked a lot like the final one except we were pulled back further i think it was maybe waist up mm. and the editor was like no let's let's just tighten up to really you know push this you know this odd expression have fun with it you know just it, it's i think you just said just you know, imagine this is a Hal Jordan no one's used to. You know, you know what? What do you think it should look like? I'm like, uh, well, I, you know, it, it sounds like he's not himself, so I'm going to go for the craziest expression. <laughs> so I probably made that expression in the mirror and just kind of went for it, and I, and that was that. And it was like, it seemed like years later, I'm seeing it on T-shirts, posters. I'm like, really? <laughs> now I think I see it more now than I did when I did it. I really wish I'd kept that original art. I sold that cover for to a to a fan for two hundred dollars. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> um, that's painful because I, I met a person on Art Collectors that if you had that cover, I can give you fifteen grand for it today. And it's oh, like, oh, I'm like, I'm like, don't. I was like, I was like, don't tell your wife. Don't tell your wife. I told her anyway. She's like, well, that was a long time ago, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I just, I didn't, I had no idea. You know, it was just, um, I've heard similar stories. You know, Terry Austin would tell me about artwork, certain things. It's like, you, you, you're working. You know, it's kind of like, and you don't know. Some, I think the things you think are going to be a big impact, maybe not. It's, it's, it's it really, it's organic. You, you don't know what's going to catch and what won't, you know. All this could have been, especially with fans not necessarily always liking it, you know, it could have just been a, all right, well, and remember, this was the 90s. We had image, we had, you know, here today, gone today. So mm. I thought, yeah, this, you know, if we get maybe a year out of this, I think that would be cool and things will go back to it. But um, we didn't approach it like a gimmick. No. So I think that helped. So what was it like working with Ron? And like, what again, this is your first real ongoing book. So what was... You know, what was it like collaborating with him? What was the style of his scripts? Was he, you know, kind of full script or was it a very dense plot? Or how much room did he kind of let you uh, kind of move around and maneuver? Ron, I I've, I mean, I'd say worked because, I mean, we still do from time to time. He He's capable of, of doing, you know, just breakdowns or full script. I like full script because I like, I feel like it's, the, the end result's going to be at its best when everybody's on the same page, <laughs> pun intended. <laughs> and so he, there will be times where he will just say, well, I'm going to leave this character's design up to you uh, because, you know, at this point, you know, I, I think your input on it will, 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 will take care of it. Like, for example, uh, the character of Fatality. Um, all they had in mind was, uh, at the time, Spawn had a, a foe named Angela. Mm-hmm. Like she was like the anti spy Well, we want an anti Kyle, an anti Lander, and that's it. I said, well, um, let's do something different. I said, you know, how many how many black female supervillains can you name? Trick question. You can't name any. So, <laughs> number one, that's what I wanted to do. And also remember, in Mike Mignola's Cosmic Odyssey, where uh, John Stewart was responsible for the death of this planet Zanchi. I said, maybe she was a survivor. And that's why she hates lanterns so much. And they were like, we love it. Let's go for it. Um, I think I was going to call her something else beforehand, and, and it didn't go over well. And I think I was a big fan of Mortal Kombat at the time. So I said, how about Fatality? I'm like, that's it. And so that's how Fatality was born. That's awesome. <laughs> so, I, I, how, so it sounds like, again, it was a very back and forth kind of relationship with Ron and working on the book at the time in terms of kind of the new things you guys could do. And again, you're using a brand new character and you can really kind of go a lot of different ways. Like there had never been a Green Lantern like this before because you kind of got to throw away the old space cop stuff and really 
explore something different. And this was the most grounded version of Green Lantern we'd ever really had. It was a person that we really felt like you, we understood who this character was. I guess, you know, I guess at the time they were making comparisons to kind of him being the, the Spider-Man of DC, so to speak, that, you know, the young hero who could, who could screw up. And again, like how much fun was it to work on Kyle for all those years? Because you're on him a long time. Well, Keep in mind, like I mentioned earlier, growing up, Spider-Man was my favorite Marvel character. So here comes Kyle, who is, I mean, he's intentionally like Spider-Man. It's, it's not even, it, we're not hiding it. It's like Peter Parker was a huge uh, influence on Kyle Rayner. But I feel like they're different in many ways also. For example, in ways they're similar, just like, you know, when when Peter Parker you know, was bitten by the spider and got the powers, he didn't immediately become a superhero. It took the death of his uncle Ben to really make him refocus on you know what he should be doing, and so Ron was like, you know, if Kyle got this ring randomly the way he did, what would make him be a superhero? Well, we're, he's going to need an uncle Ben. Well, we can't make it an uncle because people will go that's that's too on the nose. So <laughs> we, he thought, well, well, we'll make it a girlfriend. So he created Alex, and. <laughs> and infamy was was created immediately yeah. <laughs> to, to much of the surprise of everybody. My editor once told me, he said, you know, DC got a lot of letters about turning Hal into Parallax, but not as many as they got for killing Alex. Now, keep in mind, Hal Jordan had been around before I was born. <laughs> Alex had only been around just a handful of issues, if, if that. And yet, you know, people really connected to her. Um, I, I said, you know, Ron, you know, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back because, you know, he fleshed her out so well in such a short period of time that, you know, when she died, it was it was like impactful. And I think also the way it happened and the controversy thereof, uh, that added to it. Um, I don't know if, if I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the, the infamous refrigerator scene was not what you saw in the comics was not the way I originally drew it. So I was, I was going to ask about that because, I mean, I'm almost surprised that even in the form that we got, that it got through through the Comics Code Authority. Like, it seems like something like, like, this was, like, really? This this happened? Like, this is in a, you know, a mainstream superhero comic, and it's pretty grisly. So, you know, what what did you really draw on the page? And then how did you react to how the, what the printed version looked like? And do you think it was a step too far considering the Comics Code at the time? Like, and, and what that means? Well... <laughs> We, we can thank the, the comics code for the controversy. And actually, I mean that, thank them, because, you know, that controversy is one of the things that I think helped fuel the fandom. You see, even though um, the, the way I had drawn it, you know, Alex was still dead, but you could, you could tell that Major Force had broken all the shelves and kind of like made a space and laid her body in there. Hmm. But the, I guess the comics code was like, oh, we can't show her her dead body, so cover it up. And I'm thinking, cover it up. Like, no, I, I mean, I've already drawn it. You know, Romeo's already inked it. Well, you know, do a patch. So I think I did a, a, you know, like a fridge door and I just kind of, uh, just kind of glued it onto the page. And I'm thinking, all right, so I'm thinking about my own refrigerator. Um, it's doing good just to get a, you know, a, <laughs> a liter of Pepsi in there. I'm like, much less a body. I thought by by showing the fridge door mainly closed, people are going to think she's in pieces in there. Well, guess what happened? <laughs> That's exactly what everyone thought. Oh, my God, he chopped her up and put her in the fridge. And I'm thinking, see? And, <laughs> and, 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 and here we are to this day still talking about it. If they had left it alone, I think they would have forgotten about it, you know, probably, you know, three months later. But, that's, that's really you know, interesting. It's, it's when you get that imagination involved, you know. Yeah, no, because you're, you're right. Yeah, I'm just looking at the page now, and you're right. Not seeing much of it and only kind of seeing part of it does make it much worse. It's like the movie Jaws. You know, it was even though we know what a shark looks like, but you know, had we seen it, it wouldn't have been as terrifying as you hear the music and you see the fin. It's kind of like that. You know, little kids afraid there's a monster in their bed, but they can't see it, but they just. They sense it, you know. When you get that human imagination involved, yeah. Mm-hmm. When when you and Ron are writing the book, and as you said, like a big part of what makes 
Green Lantern potentially very different for an artist is that the ring can be a you know create whatever constructs it wants, and obviously you finally have a character who his actual job is to think more much more you know artistically than you know your typical Green Lanterns we'd seen in the past where we saw more functional kind of constructs, but nothing more artistic and really elaborate. So, what was the were there a lot of conversations between you and Ron on what the constructs would look like, or, or which you know what kind of fun we would have with it, or was it more coming from you, or was he more specific in when he was writing like the plots and the scripts for you? I'm curious how that breakdown actually worked. Well, the interesting thing was I had a rule for myself, and ironically, my editor made it it a a rule, and I almost didn't have the heart to tell him I was going to do it anyway. He said, because Kyle is an artist, there's no reason for him to to make the same ring construct over and over again. So if he makes a sword in one issue and it looks like a medieval sword, and he makes a sword again, you know, next issue, it's got to look like a lightsaber or it's got to look like, you know, like a swordfish or something. And I thought, oh, well, we're on the same page. That's what I wanted to do. I thought, well, why would he make the same thing over and over again? It's like if he makes a shield and it looks like a medieval shield in, in one issue, the next, it's got to look like maybe a, uh, a a turtle shell or something like that. So uh, the only exception is at one point, uh, Kyle would make a like a like a battle suit, kind of like a, you know, like an armored suit, mm-hmm. that can look the same. Mm-hmm. That was like his melee fighting suit. That was allowed to be the same. Um, mainly because he was focusing on fighting and staying alive than what the, what the construct would look like. So that was allowed to be re- repeated. But everything else, they wanted it to be different every time, which I loved. I loved that idea. It just worked for him as a character. And I think it also made, you know, uh, made the visuals better since we weren't getting a lot of repeated things. Did you keep like a kind of a reference sheet so you'd be able to kind of keep it in mind all the different constructs you'd used? No, it's just more like, you know, um, I think also keep in mind that I would, I would think about the context of what he was doing. You know, um, often I would think humor, and but I never felt like we were going to be in a situation where I'm like, oh, wait, did I draw this before? I kind of, I just remembered, I think. Um, one of my favorites was, uh, it was Kyle and Superman versus Mongol. And, you know, I got to tell you, you know, what was it like to, to have a character I designed teaming up with the Man of Steel himself against one of his foes? And so uh, Kyle creates a, uh, a, 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 a train that's just, instead of Amtrak, it's a slam track. And I, I thought, you know, uh, that was more, I don't know how well that went over, but... I enjoyed that immensely because I thought that really sums up his character. You know, this is a, a death battle with an alien capable of snapping him in two, and you know he's he's using a weapon with with almost like a tongue in cheek nature to it, and so that that sort of thing. I knew I wasn't going to repeat that. You know, that sort of thing. Certain things I think the creation has a lot to do with what's going on. You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't do that again. You know, uh, even if he created something train like. I mean, like, for example, since that was more of a, like a modern commuter train, he could create like a Western, you know, like an 1800s locomotive, but I never felt like we're, there was a situation where that would call for that. Hmm. So I didn't feel like I had to worry about, you know, repeating something because a lot of it was what I was trying to say in that particular image to go along with the story, hmm. if that makes sense. For sure. Now, I guess I, I haven't asked kind of maybe the more obvious question, but, you know, how when you create Kyle Rayner's costume... How many different designs did you go through before DC kind of gave the green light, so to speak? <laughs> um, quite a few. Um, the <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing because remember this was 1994. Image was in, I mean, in full swing. You know, uh, we're talking, you know, McFarland, you know, Rob Liefeld, and the, you know, I was influenced by the, all the the rock star status they had. So I'm thinking. You know, if, if I'm if I get to design a character, I want I want to make something that feels like he could hang with those guys. Hmm. And my editor was just shaking his head, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, one one design after the next, and it was he he was like, look, you're going to draw this character over and over again for like 22 pages an issue. You're going to so you're going to thank me that we kept this simple. He was truer words were not spoken. <laughs> <laughs> truer words were not spoken. What we ended up going with was, uh, like, for example, the mask was chosen from one design, the gauntlets and boots from another, 
the, the chest area from another. And we kind of Frankenstein them together and got, you know, what we ended up getting with. The only thing that the last element that needed to be designed that we kind of hit a sticking point was the symbol. They wanted to, to keep the, the classic house symbol. I thought, well, yeah, we've gone so extremely different with the suit and with the mask and all that. Why would he, why would, you know, why would he have the old symbol? Well, yeah, but some kind of remnant, I'm thinking, all right, here's here's my, because I actually had come up with, you know, a lot of what went into Kyle's costume were just sketches I kind of randomly came up with for a, 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 some ideas I had for John Stewart. Mm. That, you know, just I did, just did for myself. So what I did was I kind of modified it a little bit and then added it to that. And I said, well, we we established that Kyle won't speak the oath charging his battery, his ring from the battery like Hal did. So I want to imply it. So that's why it's split in half in the middle of the symbol. It's like, think of it like a sun and the moon, like, you know, brightest day, blackest night. Mm. And they're like, oh, that's why you did that. Like, hmm, hmm. <laughs> well, we'll think about it. We'll think about it, which usually means they have to make it seem like, you know, they didn't give in it right away, just like with Hal Jordan's uh, costume was parallax. Now that, I did a bunch of sketches, but I felt pretty confident right out the gate what I liked and what they would like. But they wanted to see some other ones. The only, the biggest difference that changed with Parallax's armor was he had the symbol in the center at one point, and they thought, well, get rid of the symbol, it won't make any sense. And so, uh, and the cape came a little bit later, but uh, they wanted to call him the Protector since they already owned that name. And I thought, I was like, well, can you repeat that? I said, yeah, we're going to call him the Protector. I'm like, hey, are you messing with me? Why would you call him the Protector? Well, you know, that was a, a Teen Titans character that we're, no one was using, and we own the rights to it. So, you know, that's, that's that. I'm like, uh, so I remember I, I wrote down like a paragraph of why I wanted to call it Parallax instead. And, of course, they said, well, we'll think about it. And they did. like, all right, you know, we'll, we'll go with that. I think and Ron, it helped that Ron liked it as well. I think he kind of, you know, pulled Pull, help pull it through as well. So you actually came up with the name of Parallax? Yes, I did. It's a great name. I love it. Oh, I, I've always loved it. So I'm just curious, like, wh- where did that even come from for you? Like, what what was the kind of inspiration behind Parallax as a name? Well, I thought um, years ago when I was in oh, middle school, I had a I, I had a character named Paragon, who also had a green costume. <laughs> and so I, I think I like para something. <laughs> and also, when I, I in the in the dictionary, one of the the definitions that it deals with it's a it deals with astronomy, a point of view of how we're seeing uh, heavenly bodies or something like that. It, it really had something to do with point of view. And I thought, if nothing else, how Jordan has had a completely different point of view than he had previously. Mm. And so I really pushed that point on why he should be called that. And I thought, oh yeah, that does make sense. So uh, that's how it won them over. It's, it's funny, and they were. It was. It didn't seem like it was, they were going to relent because it was like, oh, a legal thing. Like, well, we own Protector. I'm like, I yeah, and you'll still own it. Then you'll own this one too. I guess. <laughs> uh, so it's funny. It's something that they were almost dead set against, and it ended up you know being a character in the movie. <laughs> Which I would love to see some compensation for from you know someday. Who knows? But uh, but yeah, they they were against it. But then I kind of warmed down. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I know we're we're really short on our time, but I, I'll, I'll flip forward a bit. But what was it like for you having gone on this journey with Ron, and then Ron leaves the book? So what what did that feel like for you? Because you guys had kind of charted out Kyle Rayner's adventures together, and obviously there were other artists who kind of came in and went uh, when you were kind of in between issues. But you know, this was basically your, yours and Ron's baby for a while, and then Ron leaves the book. So how did you feel now that you kept kind of kept going? Really. It was to the point where I've really felt that I probably should have left also because a lot of artists they'll 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 have a stint they'll do other things but I was also thinking of job security I thought you know I don't know for a fact I could get, I could land on another book so it's almost like I was afraid to leave it's like they didn't want to fire me I didn't want to quit and thinking back I probably should have and I could always probably have come back but um, yeah it was it, in in some ways it's like Ron leaving like. You know, I'm like it was going to be like a we're leaving. I'm like, yeah, but yeah, I, he's you know he had an extensive uh, resume at Marvel even before this, so I knew he was going to find something. But I see in my case, I didn't know. You know, hmm. uh, it just I wasn't sure. So you know, I, I stuck around, and honestly, I probably should have. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> 
but uh, fortunately, Ron and I, we, you know, we would connect again on, on several things, uh, even here recently. So I'll get to that in a second. I'm curious, what was it like, again, when when you have Judd Winnick come on? And again, he's relatively new at the comic game at the time, and you're kind of the seasoned veteran for him, kind of the, the sure hand at the wheel in terms of you know being able to deliver Kyle's adventures, and he's kind of new to discovering that voice. So what were you guys like working together? It was completely different. Now, Judd was a veteran writer. He was just new to, to Lantern. Yeah. We, Judd and I never really gelled, but it, he was more like a lot of other writers I worked with. It was just more like, you know, turn in the script, go through the editor, and then give it to me. We didn't chat and bounce off ideas. We didn't have that chemistry. Now, that was to, that's no fault of Judd's. That was, that was just how the standard was. But Ron and I, we just had that, that chemistry that just, it just happened that way. You know what I mean? It was, it's not like Judd didn't do anything wrong. A matter of fact, you know, he's an award-winning writer, and, and justifiably so. But he and I, are, are the chemistry just wasn't there, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's an amazing writer and has the, <laughs> has the awards to prove it. Um, <laughs> but I think as far as Lantern, it's just, um, you know, there, well, you know, there, it's not like you know, the fans didn't like it because I just saw a post on Twitter. Someone was talking about one of his crea- villains that he created, uh, Nero, that they would love to see that character reappear. So um, there certainly you know, were fans of his work on Lantern. For sure. But, you know, just the dynamic was different because we didn't get to, to, we didn't really chat back and forth the way Ron and I did. Um, and, and by the way, we're, we're good on time. I, I, I What I'm thinking about it, it's like, you know, um, I, I'm pretty much done work-wise. So it's, it's more like, there. Are, I, I've done podcasts that kind of, with multiple guests they kind of drone on and on not really covering much territory but I like the fact that I can tell you've actually <laughs> you've actually done some homework and, and I, I appreciate that so uh, right. any questions you have you know my pleasure. I do actually know I have to, I owe you an apology because I actually have another engagement that I have to leave for as well. So I apologize, but I would love to have you back on at some point to again, go a little bit more in depth. Cause I think there's so much here and I'm such a big fan of this run. And I, I also, I'm curious, like after you left Green Lantern and I don't mean any disrespect, where did you go? Well, um, there, there's a lot of speculation, maybe on my part and others, like what happened. I mean, it was one of those things where it was kind of abrupt. I, at one point, towards the end, I had a lot of offers to, you know, to do other things, but then it seemed like they were withdrawn. I wasn't really sure why that was. Now, fortunately, um, the editor, Dan Rasper, who was over Justice League, who I had actually met in person once while I was doing Lantern, said, hey, I'd like to do Justice League. And he said, no, you're too slow. He, he didn't sugarcoat it. And I oh, thought, wow. wow. But then the time would come where he, he, he literally said, I think you're ready. And I felt like I won an award. I'm like, the same editor that told me to my face. I met him in person. He, he just said no. He was like, you're, you're, you're de-, his exact words are no because you're a deadline risk. Interesting. That's what he said. And so, but the, the time would come and he'd approach me and I would do Justice League for him for a while. And I take to this day, I almost get goosebumps. He's like, yeah, now you're ready. Like I've monitored your progress. And I did, uh, I did Justice League for a while. And, uh, but what was you know, it like was, to have, what was it like to have someone say that to you? I mean, again, you're a working professional and someone says that you're a deadline risk. Was that hard to hear? Was that, you know, motivating to, tr- you know, try and figure out a way to be faster and more efficient? Like, how did you take something like that? Because that could be very demoralizing or damaging, right? So, but unless you take it the right I, way. And, I loved it. I yeah. loved it because too often when I would talk to people, you know, they sugarcoat everything. You know, oh, yeah, well, maybe. He got right to the point. And I thought, this is, you know, I can work with that because that's that's how, that's what college was was like for me, and even vocational school before that. I had instructors that got right to the point. You know, this is bad. You know, fix this, this, and this. I can work with specifics, and so he felt that I wasn't fast enough. So I thought, let me work on that while maintaining quality. And you know, when the time came and he felt that I was doing it, like I said, it was it, it, it was. It was great to be able to say I was working on Justice League, but also the fact that I had convinced him. <laughs> and I didn't twist his arm either. He approached me. And so, you know, um, that was that was great on, on multiple levels. It really was. 
It's funny. It's almost like it's uh, going back to what you said before about how you were first going to conventions and trying to get you know get portfolio reviews and or trying to get in, and that DC is the ones that giving you the hard the hard kind of facts, but it's what you needed to motivate and get better. And that's still happening. You know, even when you're a working professional, it still was something that was happening to you and that was helping you. Absolutely. I mean, any, anything. Any, if a person is trying to achieve a goal, you need someone that's going to give you the cold hard truth that will help you. It's like uh, those shows like, uh, uh, the, like uh, you know, those, the singing shows like the, the Voice or whatever, and they have the coaches that are brutally honest, like Simon Cowell, you know how he would be brutally honest about mm. the singing, that sort of thing. I'm like, you need a Simon Cowell to really tear your stuff apart. You'll find out how much ego you have and how much how serious you are about learning and improving. You know, it's it's painful, but that's how you get there. It's like lifting weights, you know. Does sound like you know, you learned all the. Athlete, it does sound it does sound like you learned all kind of the the best lessons from that because I mean it sounds like you had not only a work ethic but you know a desire to get better to you know integrate you know constructive criticism and figure out how to be better and there are, again a lot of people people who won't make it are the people who can't take that or have too much ego or aren't willing to it I guess as you said the people who don't have the intangibles and it sounds like you were in right. abundance of those intangibles. Well, you know, I, I was I was taught well. I, I have I can thank some really great teachers who were willing to explain to me what the intangibles were, and it was I, you know, I learned from those much wiser than me, and hopefully I can always pass it on to others who are seeking to reach whatever goals they have. Mm-hmm. So before we kind of sign off for today, and again, I, I, I am serious. I would love to you know, even do a, more of a deep dive in some of your Green Lantern stuff because there's so much amazing material in there. But um, before we do that in the future, um, is there other stuff you want to kind of plug or things you want to say that you're kind of working on now that we can look forward to? Uh, well, um, th- there's always irons in the fire. I, it's one of those things, and, and there better be, especially in this day and age. But hmm. um, I've got a Kickstarter that I'll be uh, participating in later this year called Sword of Freya. I'll be working with a, uh, a number of other artists as well. So kind of like a sword and sorcery, Norse mythology type of, of, of graphic novel. Uh, I'll be looking for uh, some more announcements regarding that later in the year, especially if you follow me on Twitter. Um, but uh, as far as Ron Mars, um, we've always got something cooking. Just like out of nowhere, we did the eight page in the uh, Green Lantern, the 80th anniversary. Mm. Uh, last year so um, we, we we may have something in the works um, maybe not necessarily be with DC but you know he and I we, we, we've got some things you know cooking to see if, what, you know, if it comes to fruition so the uh, you know, the Mars Banks team it's, it's, it's got more <laughs> on the horizon when you started working with Ron was it immediately evident that you guys would kind of be that kind of tandem team or that this could be a partnership that would last a long time like did you guys kind of immediately hit it off or was it something that just kind of naturally you know grew over time it grew over time when I discovered what a fan he was of art in, in, in general and also who his, who, he, who his favorite uh, artists were and that they were also his neighbors <laughs> I mean for him to say oh yeah I'm, I'm, big, I'm a big fan of Bernie Wrights and oh so am I yeah and Bernie and I are going to lunch later on I'm like what <laughs> and that would just keep happening it's like yeah and, and Jim Starlin and I are playing volleyball and you know I mean one after the other I'm thinking you live in the coolest spot I think on the planet right now so um, Ron is a writer but he, it's like he thinks like an artist I mean so often the scripts are you know very uh you know, very specific on, on you know, will this tell the story and how cool will this look, you know, as an, as an image. And I think because of, you know, those you know, that have been around him for so long, it's influenced his style of writing. He, uh, he, he thinks very visually. And, I, and as an artist, I can't say enough about how great that is. So I think once I got a handle on that, I thought, yeah, we're, we're going to make a, good, a really good team, I think. What, what was it like? And I promise this will be the last question. But what was it like no, to come? No, to, you're fine. You're fine. What was it like to come back for that anniversary special and again reunite with Ron and do the you know a, a Kyle story? Um, you know, did it feel like getting the team back together and not just you and Ron, but also like your this baby that you nurtured together? Well, what was funny is that seemed like that came out of nowhere. I remember back in oh, I guess twenty two thousand nine or two thousand eleven, something like that. There was a, DC was doing a series of, of titles called Retro, like Retro Action or something like that. 
and they would you know have teams from different decades like you know you had you know Green Lantern in like more like the 70s I think you had uh, uh, Joe, Joe, Joe Staten in, in, the, in the team that was known for Green Lantern at that time working on it or he may have been the 80s possibly and then you know when it came to 90s well that was Ron and I so we did that I remember Terry Austin who inked it I thought, Terry, you know, this could be our, our way back doing regular work for DC again. And it was like, no, it was like, this is kind of one and done. I'm thinking, oh, you're just being negative. He's like, I've been doing this a long time, kid. And I'm going to tell you, this is it. And he was right. <laughs> we didn't hear from DC for a long time. So with uh, the 80th anniversary, I remember I got an email. And, you know, this is, I mean, the pandemic was in, in full swing, unfortunately. And I thought, you know, or comics even going to be a thing, and it was like, yeah, we want to do this. Uh, you know, we, we want to do this 80th anniversary, and also at that time in my career, I was almost 100% digital. And I thought, you know, if I do this, you know, can it can it be digital? Like I've been working, and said, yeah. Matter of fact, you know, that that could be a really preferred way for us to handle the files and that sort of thing. So um, the 80th anniversary, I, I did that completely digital, and so uh, they, they really liked it and. And uh, I thought, you know, if you guys need anything else, you, you, you know how to get, you know how to reach me. So, I mean, obviously they're very different products, but I'm curious, what, which one did you kind of have more fun with? Was it doing the DC retrospectives, or was it doing the 80th anniversary? Obviously, they're very different projects, and one of them is a lot longer than the other. But which one kind of felt more fulfilling? I mean, they're both kind of you know anniversary style projects, but you know, and separated by about 10 years, but which one did you find that kind of got more of the creative juices flowing? Oh, the 80th anniversary, hands down, mainly because Kyle hasn't really been appearing a whole lot recently. Mm. So, you know, the fans, when they they discovered that there was going to be a Kyle story, they, you know, there was a lot of positive feedback. And what was ironic was on DC's actual Twitter page, they used my panel the last panel of Kyle flying as the advertisement for it. I thought, hey, <laughs> they must they must have really liked what I did. So, and of course, it, it did help that I had an amazing color team. I, I'm not sure who it was, but uh, that just you know I was personally happy with what I did. But just that color just brought it to life. So, um, yeah, I, I, I would say that you know I was very very happy with the, uh, working on that. Now, my all-time favorite project is actually Green Lantern Silver Surfer. Mm. That's my favorite comic. That's my my career highlight for me personally. Because um, it brought a lot of things full circle. I mean, it was like I'm drawing Marvel characters, you know, especially with I had a, a double-page spread with Galactus, which wasn't in the original script. I literally harassed Ron to put that in there. But you got to <laughs> let me do the origin of the Surfer. Well, that doesn't really. It, well, it does. You know, I, I, I pitched it. Pitched it. Was like, well, I guess that would look pretty cool. So, I said, besides, Ron, I don't think I, I. I don't know if I'd ever get a chance to draw the Galactus professionally again. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, that's 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 my favorite, hands down. Eightieth was a close second, but uh, but yeah, overall, it's it's still Green Lantern Silver Server. Well, again, Daryl, thank you so much for taking the time today and chat with me. And again, I will have you back to do kind of maybe a little bit more of a a granular creator commentary on some of your Green Lantern stuff because so much of it is so, again, I I was in the kind of right age group when that was happening. I mean, Kyle is kind of my Green Lantern. I always liked Hal too. But, um, you know, when this came out, not to age you up and make you feel old at all, but I mean, (laughs) you know, I was probably 10 or 11, I think, when Kyle became Green Lantern. So, you know, he's my Green Lantern. My brother-in-law, like he... He used, to, he used to live on Rainer Court, and he was so happy because, you know, because he loved Kyle Rainer. It was his first favorite Green Lantern, and then he lived on Rainer Court. So he was always such a huge fan as well. So, you know, it was it was our Green Lantern growing up. So uh, I know that he would say thank, thank you, and I know I would as well because uh, he gave us a lot of great stories. Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, Adam, I, it was, it's been my pleasure to, uh, to be with you this evening. And, uh, you know, anytime you want to do this again, feel free to contact me. Excellent. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Have a good night. Take care.